So, welcome uh, again to the journey with Jesus. Today we're going to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi. It was named that in honor of two men. One, Tiberius Caesar. The other, Philip, who was one of the sons of Herod. And he... Um, he was made the sort of the ruler over this region, and he renamed the area after, this, after Caesar as sort of a way of ingratiating himself with Caesar, and then also named it after himself to ingratiate himself with himself. So well, that's just what people did back then. They named things after themselves. And so this is a, definitely a destination that we'll be going to uh, in February if you come on the trip to Israel. And if you don't, you can experience it here. So I want to show you a few pictures of this place. It's about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. So down here you see is the Sea of Galilee, and here's um, right around here is where Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. And, and then actually there's a much smaller, and there's not much of it now, but there's a much smaller lake to the north of the Sea of Galilee. So actually sometimes we look at the map of Israel and we only see two lakes. We see the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea much further now. Uh, south, which the Jordan empties into and it evaporates from there, which is why it's so salty. But actually, above north of the Sea of Galilee is a much smaller lake. And then all the way up here are the headwaters of the Jordan, and this is Caesarea Philippi. That's the town that um, it actually existed before Philip, but he renamed it for himself. And the earliest record, <clears throat> pardon me, the earliest record we have of this place is that there were pagan sacrifices that began to be offered at the mouth of a cave, which I'm going to show you in just a second. Um, but, and that coincided, that was about the 3rd century B.C., that coincided with the Greek expansion into the ancient Near East under Alexander the Great, which we've covered before. It's an interesting. Yes, just like that, to music like that. He was marching through with his armies and conquering everything that he touched. It was actually quite amazing. Good. So, uh, but the, the Greeks then established, and we, the earliest record we have of it is about 200 B.C., 198 B.C. There was a major battle near this place, and when the battle takes place, then things get recorded in history. So the first mention that we really have of this place is that it was called Pontius. And now, it was called Pontius back then. Now it's known as Banias. And so that name is is similar to the old name, because there was a temple there to the Greek god Pan. And the Greek god Pan was the god of, of nature, the god of the forest. It's thought that he was one of the sons of Hermes. And so there was, a, there was an altar there. There was also this giant cave there. And the pagans would sacrifice at the mouth of that cave, and that cave was known as the Gates of Hades, because it was kind of imposing. And People, in a superstitious way, saw this dark cave, and they thought, that's the entranceway into the abyss. That's, so we dare not go in there, but maybe we'll sacrifice at the mouth of this cave so that whatever is on the other side of it won't come out and get us, or something like that. So you'll begin to see this is a reconstruction of several of the, the temples and things that were in that time and actually later than the time of Jesus. So this is kind of a mismatch of times. But up here you see this cave and the temple to um, Pan. This was a temple, I believe, to Caesar himself because they revered him as a god. But behind this temple is this giant cave. 
that was thought to be the gateway to Hades. And here in the wall of the cliff are some niches where there would be statues of Pan and other gods and things like that. So today, as you can imagine, none of these buildings are standing, but the niches are still in the wall of the cliff, and the foundations and some of the low wall work of the, of the temples are left. And so here you can see, if you can tell, there's some walls here with some limestone blocks and some columns. And here are the niches in the wall. You can see them. And here is the gates of Hades. And you can go in there. I mean, maybe you can't now. I think I did when I was there. But there's really not. It's just, it's, it doesn't go that deep. It's, it's just dark and big. And, and so there's one of those niches that I talked about where they used to have a statue of the god Pan or other, other gods. And also, there you get a good view of the gates of Hades. But also, you get quite an interesting juxtaposition because you see this river here, which is the headwaters of the Jordan River. We're right up against a huge cliff here. So where does the water come from? It comes from underground. And it's quite a river at that point even. There's a subterranean stream that surfaces at this place. So it's quite an interesting place. And if you go in the summertime, you can dip your feet in there. We'll be there in February, so it might be a little chilly to stick your feet in there. But it's a beautiful place in the middle of what we think of as a desert. Here's this cliff with a subterranean stream coming up, a lot of vegetation all around it. And this juxtaposition between life and death, the gates of Hades, and this life coming up from the water, coming up from under the ground, it's really fascinating. And so... Um, that's where Jesus was when we uh, are about to, to look at the, the passage that we have today, which is Matthew 16, 13 through 20. By the way, that's on page 972 if you want to turn there in the Sanctuary Bible, Matthew 16. One thing I'm going to ask you to think about as we read is that Jesus came here at the end of his Galilean ministry. What Adele read was the beginning of his Galilean ministry. Matthew 4, after Jesus had spent time being tempted in the wilderness... He went out from there, and he, he settled in the region of Galilee. And for 11 chapters of Matthew, which is a really one of the lion's shares of Matthew, he spent his time in Galilee. All around the Sea of Galilee, he gave um, the Sermon on the Mount. He healed. He gave great signs and wonders. He taught. And so it, this is actually the turning point in the Gospel of Matthew, because from this point on, at the highest place, I'm not going to bring the map back, but, but the highest place, really of Israel at that time, he, the, the northernmost point, he's about to now head south down to Jerusalem to go to the cross and to go and do what he'd been sent to do. And so the turning point comes when Jesus asks the disciples this very important question, who do you say that I am? And when he finally gets the right answer, it seems like he's ready now to leave Galilee and go to Jerusalem, and, and enough things have happened right uh, that he can go forward. But um, you'll notice that Jesus refers to the gates of Hades when he's talking to Peter. So this is one of those really interesting places where he mentions a geographical place in the geographical place that he's in. And so listen for that. And um, also listen uh, to how this really pl this place, Caesarea Philippi or Banias or Panias, is a place where heaven and earth and the underworld meet for one moment at that intersection. And that moment becomes a turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. So I'm just going to leave that picture up there because I think it's, it's pretty good and, and um, 
will go forward. So let's go to our reading. It's Matthew 16, 13 through 20. It's on page 972, and this is how it goes. Verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to give a quick overview of five of the verses of this passage, and then ask ourselves, well, what implications do these have for us going forward? What's happening in this passage, and what does it mean for us? So I'd like to ask you to go right back to verse 13, and mention again that this is a season of the end of his time in Galilee. And so the disciples had been with him for several months. He called them right there at the Sea of Galilee, many of them. Matthew himself was on the banks, it seems like, on the banks of the Sea of Galilee, sitting at his table collecting taxes, and Jesus said, come and follow me. And instantly Matthew dropped what he was doing and began to follow Jesus. And they followed him everywhere around Galilee, listening to him preach and teach the Sermon on the Mount, watching him drive demons out of people, watching him heal people, And here he takes them finally on this 25-mile sojourn up to Caesarea Philippi to actually what was really a very beautiful and peaceful place with the water coming up from under the ground, despite the fact that it was a pagan temple, it was a pagan complex dedicated to the worship of the Greek god Pan. But he put them in that place, and he asked them there, not anywhere else, but ask them there, who do people say that I am? And and they get, he gets sort of the normal responses that people would get. The people in Jesus' time were expecting the Messiah. They were expecting him to be from the line of David. They were expecting him to seem a lot like a prophet. And so they mentioned the names of several of the prophets, Jeremiah, Elijah, Elijah. Even John the Baptist. John the Baptist had been executed at this point, and so some people were like, maybe maybe Jesus is John brought back to life. It's an interesting kind of idea that some people had. And so that's all normal. That's a completely understandable response. And uh, Jesus, but but it's wrong, (laughs) you know. And so Jesus says, all right, I'm glad that you've been listening to what other people say, and clearly we have our work cut out for us. Because our next step is going to actually be educating all these people on who I really am. I'm not Elijah. I'm not Jeremiah. I'm not John. All those people are their own people. I'm not them. I'm somebody else entirely. But now the time has come, after you've been with me for 11 chapters of Matthew, I'm going to give you the quiz now. And I hope you get the answer right. I think Jesus is like, 
crossing his fingers, like, please, God, let these numbskulls have gotten it right by now. Uh, or you could decide for yourself that Jesus already knew the answer when he asked that. That's a different question. Put that in a box and put it over here. We can save it for another day. But he asked them, who do you say that I am? What about you? Who do you say that I am? In verse 15. And Peter, who's always quick to speak and sometimes says the right thing, this time was quick to speak and says the right thing. Yay, Peter! If you read on a a paragraph, you find that he says the wrong thing again. So it, it's just, it's like that was his best and worst day all in one day because he got likened to Satan after, you know, a, a paragraph later. And that's not a fun day when Jesus calls you Satan. But Peter gives the right answer, and this is exactly what he says. You are the Christ, and the Christ is just the Greek word for the Messiah. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. Not only that, the Son of the living God. Now, this is important. Not just the son of a god or some god, but the living god. And that's an important distinction that would have definitely been made in this place right here. Because there were the, there were the gods, and they were the dead gods. They were statues. They were idols. They could not talk. They could not move. They could not actually act in the world. They were fictitious and foolish. And they were surrounded by fake gods. Every one of these niches had a fake god in it. But in distinction to that, Peter says, you are the son of the living God, the one who moves and speaks and acts in human history and who's actually alive. And one sign that he's alive is that he has a son. Another sign that he's alive is that he speaks to us and reveals things to us. And we have seen his power because we've been walking with you all these months, and we've seen what God has done through you. So this, this confession of Peter is important in two very distinct ways. One is that this is the Messiah, the one that we've been waiting for, not just some other prophet come back to life. But also that you're related to the living God, the one who can do things in this world. And so this is a great confession of faith. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus is like, yes, A plus, finally, you know, uh, verse 17, take a look at that. And it's actually what I would find is to be the most beautiful part in the kernel of this passage is the first things that Jesus says next to Peter. Blessed are you. It's the same word that's used in the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. They'll inherit the earth. Blessed or happy are you Blessings are going to come to you, Simon, son of Jonah, because, and this is important, this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I want to back up there to where it says man, and some of you may have a different translation of the Bible, and it doesn't say man there. Does somebody else have flesh and blood in their Bible? Okay, a couple, good. What, which one do you have? The new NIV. The new, new, new NIV. Whatever, yes. What do you have, Blake? Same? The newer NIV? Yeah. Partly we could say if the old NIV sometimes favors masculine language, and so we want to be thinking about that and, and avoid that if we can, when it's not really called for. But actually the text here is not man. That would be the Greek word anthropos, where we get words like anthropology and things like that, or misanthrope, somebody who hates people. But it's flesh and blood. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, 
but my Father who is in heaven. And that flesh and blood sometimes is shorthand for humankind, right? I mean, flesh and blood, that's a way of talking about people. People have flesh and blood. But it's also a way of talking about the limitations of people. And this is important. This is really where I want to go. So I'm going to spend a little time on this. Flesh and blood are things that tell us that we're talking about limitations, things that are finite. So flesh and blood, there's some things that flesh and blood can't reveal to you. The flesh and blood, in its limitedness, in its finiteness, cannot comprehend that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of the living God. It can't do that. It's, it's not able to. But God can. The unlimited and the infinite can do such a thing. But the finite, the flesh and blood, cannot. Paul talks about this a little bit. You know where he says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's limited. There are things the flesh cannot do. And so what we have here, many things happening, but one of the things that is happening is that the infinite and the unlimited is reaching in to the finite and the limited and exposing it to something amazing that it can then proclaim. And so, I mean, I don't need to tell you about human limitations. The only people you, well, the, the only people who don't think they have human limitations but probably should realize they have human limitations is 17-year-old people. Do you know what I'm talking about? They, they think they're invincible and immortal and infallible and uh, incredible and uh, inedible and whatever else. You know, it's like they, nothing can touch the 17-year-old. Uh, they have no concept of their limitations. But children younger than them seem to understand their limitations on some level. And once you turn 18 and once you turn 47 and once you turn 87 and once you turn 107, the limitations are all around. I mean, I get up from bed, and my knees make this creaking noise, which I don't particularly care for. It just does that. And, you know, I actually print out my sermon in pretty large print, but this sure helps. Oh, that helps. It really helps. I cannot believe it. And there's all sorts of other limitations. There's mental limitations. There's just some stuff I will never understand. You know, I have some math books from college that I guess I used to understand, and they're, un you know, and I open them up, and I'm like, what is this? I have no idea. Did I actually understand this at some point? Maybe. Maybe I faked it. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter what grade I got in calculus at this point in my life. It does not matter. There's stuff in my human limitations I will not get. I'm limited emotionally. I'm stuck in some patterns that I can't break out of. God could help me with that. That's what I'm going to talk about a little bit later. But there's these limitations that are all around us. And here's where it really counts. Jesus says, flesh and blood, the limited, the finite, has no ability to understand that I am the Messiah and the Son of the living God. It is not possible. But the infinite and the unlimited, which is God in heaven, he can reveal to you something that you cannot figure out for yourself, that you cannot understand yourself. Verse 18. Jesus is ecstatic. This is something I can work with. Your name is Peter. It had already been Peter, uh, but 
you know, maybe he got called Peter more often at this point, because you saw even back in chapter 4, Simon, who was called Peter. So we're not really sure that Peter's name got changed just that. Simon's name got changed to Peter at this particular moment. But he had both names, I guess. But his name is being highlighted now. The, the Peter part of his name is being highlighted. That word Peter, the Greek is Petros, and it's the same word for rock. It, it means rock, and this is where we get words like petroleum, the oil that comes from rocks. That's petroleum, right? Other words that tell us that this means rock. So on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is a great thing. Now, what do we know about this? What is Jesus building on here? Is he building on Peter? Could be. Because Peter, disciple, I guess, one of the first ones to be called, and he becomes the leader of all the other disciples and the leader of the church after Jesus leaves. Or perhaps it's Peter's confession of who Jesus is that he's going to build his church on. Some people say that. Even others say that it's the proclamation from God, the infinite and unlimited, into the finite Peter's life that is the thing on which Jesus will build the church. You can choose. That's a free choice for you. But Jesus is saying, in this particular moment, this confession of yours is so important that it really does inaugurate the existence of the church from this point on, on some level. I'm going to build on this. Whatever's happening here at Caesarea Philippi, at Pontius, I'm going to build on this. And it has to do with your confession. It has to do with the disciples and what I'm going to be teaching you. It has to do with what you've seen and heard and experienced me do all these months in Galilee. And now we're ready to do the next thing. And so this is really the turning point. This is the hinge in the Gospel of Matthew. Everything changes from this point on. And now he's ready to leave Galilee. Now, Galilee. now he's ready to go and do the next stage because the disciples finally understand who he is. We think, we hope. Now, there's a relapse. It just happens a paragraph later. There's a relapse. But it's a start. This is how life is, right? This is what it is like when you build a church on humans, on finite people. You need a constant infusion of the infinite and the unlimited to keep the church moving. And actually, that's what happens today. That's what's happening this morning. This church wouldn't be here if God had not sustained the church with a capital C all these 2,000 years. It would not exist. It's miraculous that it exists today. And I want you to be thinking, although that's not the main point, that it is God's continuous and continued miraculous intervention in our lives that keeps this church going. Okay, so it's not just a random collection of people who happen to be sitting here on a Sunday morning and not watching tennis or riding their bikes, which seems to be like what everybody else does on Sunday morning. You go out there, they're like people riding bikes to coffee shops and reading books. That's what people who don't go to church do. And they read the New York Times, I guess, whatever. But you're here. It's not an accident. There's a sustaining infinite power underneath all of this, and you have to believe that. You have to believe that. This is a miraculous place and a miraculous gathering. And God has miraculous plans and goals for it. I was really touched. If you didn't get a chance, listen to last week's sermon on the Internet. Dale Lusk gave us a home run. It was such a good sermon about 
unbelievable things happening, even though we have trouble believing that they can. And, and I'm just thrilled that I can kind of follow on to what he said, but listen to it. Uh, somebody suggested that instead of me preaching some Sunday, we would just play the tape of last week's sermon so that everybody could hear it who didn't get to hear it. And uh, I am not opposed to that idea at all. I mean, it uh, would give me a week off. Not that uh, that's important, but uh, it was a good sermon. And everyone needs to hear it. So Jesus is pointing to the gates of Hades, this cave there, saying the church is built on you. It's built on your confession of who I am. It's built on God revealing it to you in your finitude. And my church is built on that, and my church is so stable, even if it's built on kind of rickety things like you, Peter, that even the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And what that meant is that death, death itself, will not overcome it. They, people around there thought that that was the gate to the underworld. That's where the gate through which you went when you died and you would kind of go down into this, at least the pagans thought that, this place where you just sort of wandered around in, in ennui. Like, you didn't feel great. You didn't feel good. You didn't feel terrible. You just kind of, eh. You just kind of, blah. Uh, I don't know what to liken it to. Uh, hopefully, no, hopefully nobody does. Uh, they thought that that was what happened when you died. It wasn't really, it was an afterlife, but not a resurrection at all. It was just a place where you were stored for eternity, evidently. But death is the ultimate in human limitation, isn't it? That's what we're all kind of gearing towards when you're 47 or 87 or 107. That thing is coming closer to you all the time. And it's not just your knees that start to creak, I'm guessing, right? Probably your elbows and your whole body creaks, I guess. And uh, it faces us. But Jesus is saying here, in essence, the ultimate symbol of our limitation, death itself, cannot overcome the church. And it cannot overcome your proclamation of who I am. So I want to think now about what some of this means for us. And and, uh, if you've been reading the news this week, did you know that Stephen Hawking said that we have 100 years left? Did you hear this? Stephen, he used to say we had 1,000 years left. Uh, But he's revised his estimate. And he's pretty smart, but I don't know if he's exactly right. But his view was that in 1,000 years we'll have we'll have either gotten so populous or we'll have used up so many of the Earth's resources or we'll have changed the Earth so much that it will be unlivable in a thousand years. But he said he's revised it in, in, in such a sort of optimistic way to a hundred years. There's a limitation on this planet. It's like an expiration date on a carton of milk, right? That's what Stephen Hawking says. This is a limit that we have on this planet. And, of course, being a scientist... That there's only a scientific solution to this problem. And, and the scientific solution is that we need to start trying really hard right now to go find another planet to do the same thing to, or other planets. And Theoretically, there's almost an unlimited number of planets if you can just get to them. So that's the solution, is even, even secular people understand limitations. 
They're all around us as human beings. And our planet itself is theoretically. And, and I don't know what to think of that. You can agree with that or disagree with that. But that's just what's happening out in the world today. People are saying we better start thinking about how to extend the shelf life of the human race. Because without doing that, we're going to perish. We're going to come up against some things that we just won't be able to solve. And so um, this is really the flesh and blood, I think, that Jesus was talking about. Humans have limitations. They're able to understand a lot of things, but they're not able to understand that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of the living God. <clears throat> and what this got me thinking about is to recast all of Scripture, all of Scripture, as being the story of the infinite entering into and liberating the finite. Just think about that. I'll say it again. All of Scripture, or almost all of Scripture, all of Scripture is about the infinite entering into and liberating the finite. It's about God intervening in flesh and blood human history and redeeming it from its brokenness and giving it eternal life so that it has no limits anymore after that point. I think that's what's happening when God said, let there be light from a finite place, if you believe in the Big Bang Theory, which I think really dovetails really nicely with the creation account, this singularity of matter, all the matter in the universe, collapsed into one small ball in a static place that God finally says, let there be light, and it explodes out into infinitude, practically. So when God says, let there be light, the, the infinite is entering the finite. When God lets a 90-year-old woman have a child, what's that sound like? Same thing, right? When God parts the waters, how do you do that to let the people go through? The infinite entering into the finite. When walls collapse, they circle around Jericho, right? Impossible things happen. How can just walking around a city make its walls fall down? God's power working through that. I could be here for another half hour, I won't, listing all the things. When God brought down fire from heaven for the prophet Elijah to prove that he was God, flesh and blood cannot prove that I am God. But fire from heaven, that can do it. That can do it. And then the infinite truly entered the finite when God was born into the world in a human body. Think about that. Truly the infinite entered into the finite so that it could liberate the whole world. And that's what happened both at the birth of Jesus but at the death of Jesus too. Because what gets defeated at the resurrection? Death itself. The Apostle Paul tells us this. Death itself is put to death at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The ultimate limitation of all humanity is entered into and destroyed. And the gates of Hades, the gates of death, will not be able to come against it. All of Scripture is the story of the infinite entering into and liberating the finite. If you're taking notes, write that down. All of Scripture is the story of the infinite entering into and liberating the finite. 
And it happens here when God enters this story. It happens here with Peter. The infinite knowledge of God teaches Peter something that flesh and blood is not able to understand or learn or proclaim by itself. Only the power of the living God makes that possible. So what are the implications of this? What does that matter for you today? What does it matter for me? At my father's funeral, he died 27 years ago on July 14th, so not that long in the future from here. We read from Job 19, and this is how it goes. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, now listen to this part, yet in my flesh, limited part of me, will I see God, the infinite. I myself will see him with my own eyes, and I, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. So the implications are first, and let's get this out of the way. I hope it's obvious at this point. The first implication, the first implication of this is that death has no power over us in the long run. In the short run, absolutely, death has some power over you. I mean, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that you're not going to die a physical death. Unless the Lord comes back, and may he come soon, but death does have some power for you over you. But in the long run, death has been put to death. The infinite enters, and it liberates the finite. And in our finite flesh, we shall see the infinite God someday. In our flesh. God cares about our flesh so much that he'll bring us to heaven in the flesh. For heaven will come to us in the flesh. And we will be together with God. And death will be gone and dead. But before then, I want you to think about the limitations that you may be experiencing in this life. And in this season of where you are right now. So there could be some things that are holding you back. It could be your body. It could be your health, right? Those are fairly obvious things. It could be your inner life that cannot break out of old patterns, that cannot make the next steps that you need to take. It could actually be your relationship to the Messiah and even perhaps a creeping lack of faith that Jesus is indeed the Son of the living God. Come to earth to free you from sin and death and the power of evil. I don't doubt, because I have these doubts myself, that there may be some in this room who doubt from time to time, or maybe all the time, that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus will do what he says he will do, that God has a purpose for you, that God wants to enter your finite life with his infinite power and make a change and a turning point. And I just want to say that if you have those doubts, it's better to explore them and talk to somebody about them than to nurse them inside your own life. Does that make sense? I have doubts too. And I try to find someone to talk to about them because in talking them out, it seems to help. But you, you don't throw away the cloak that you should be mending. There's a difference. So there's limitations that we're up against. 
What did Jesus do? He took his disciples to a place that was apart, this place. He gave them a chance to consider all that he had done among them in the last month, the miracles, the words he taught. And then he put them face to face with the portal of death. He said, look at that place. And then he asked you, who do you say that I am? This is what I want you to do this week. Look back on your life. Look at what Jesus has done for you. Look at how God has appeared to you and made the impossible possible. And I'm certain that for everyone in this room, there's at least one of those stories. I don't think you'd be here otherwise, but if there isn't, then let's talk about that too. But I'm almost certain that for everybody has some story in their life at some point about how God reached in. And helped you to see that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And you recapture that place. And you can answer, like Peter, because the infinite reached into the finite. Flesh and blood will not reveal much to you. But the Father in heaven, he can and he will lead you into truth about the Son. And so I'm going to ask us to pray for that. Because we need the faith to say that when we open ourselves up to God's power and his revelation that we can start making sense of our limitations, and in some cases we can accept them in a constructive way, and in other cases we can overcome those limitations with the Spirit's power. And that's what God wants for us. The knowledge that comes with the blessing as Jesus blessed Peter. And that blessing is a turning point for us where we're never the same again, and our path in life changes, and we walk with confidence, not just somewhere, but to the cross to the place where God wants us to serve and sacrifice. And then after that, to the empty tomb where all limitations have been taken away and God frees us completely. So let's pray for that. Heavenly Father, help us not to put our trust in flesh and blood and what we think it can reveal to us. But help us look at the life of Jesus in and among us sustaining us, freeing us, enlightening us, and empowering us. Father, remind us of those ways in which you were totally real and true to us. And thank you for the blessing that comes when we acknowledge that your Son, Jesus, is the Messiah and the Son of the living God. Amen.